Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm your host, Lauren Evans, and with me as always is Virginia Allen. Excited to be here, Lauren. This week we're coming to you from our parents' house, something I don't think Virginia or I had planned to be doing at all all this year. (laughs) So Virginia, how has it been living with your parents in your mid-20s? Yeah, you know, it's um, definitely, it's not what I expected to be doing in April of this year, uh, working from home in Boston. Um, but so I would say it's it's fun. It's certainly fun to like at the end of a workday, be able to like go sit at your family dining room table and just enjoy a meal with your parents and, you know, watch Jeopardy with them at night, uh, things like that. So it's fun to be able to catch up. It's definitely weird though. Like the very first night I was home, I was laying in bed I was like, it feels like Christmas, but it's not. Because <laughs> in my head, that's like always usually when I'm home, it's like a holiday, like Christmas or Fourth of July or something like that. It's like, nope, I got to get up tomorrow and go to work. So <laughs> it's it's just, uh, it's kind of a weird reality. But Lauren, how's how's it been for you in Florida with your parents? Yeah, it's so interesting how your relationship with your parents changes through the years. You know, like you you want to revert back to being like 16 and your mom doing the laundry, but also too, you realize that your parents are actual cool humans that you want to talk to. So it's really, it's really funny balancing those two things, you know, and I, I'm closer to 30. So just being here and that's kind of our joke is like, I'm 30 and I moved home, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're definitely making the best of the situation. And I talk a lot about my niece on this program and it just, uh, with all the suffering that's come from this pandemic and, you know, all the bad in the world, one really great thing to come out is I can't think of any other scenario where I'd get to spend two months with my brand new baby niece every day. That is so special. As Lauren and I were, uh, we were talking yesterday over um, uh, like a video call to plan the show out a bit. And her niece was at the house and came on to, to chat with us for a little bit. She didn't have a lot to say. Uh, she mainly cried, but <laughs> yeah, it's you know, great. You know, it's I so can, great to yeah. see a baby right now. Yeah. I can, I like, I do some, give my sister a break and do some work and, you know, have her on my lap. It's just, it's really great. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Now, I know one of the things that you like roared into this season with was I'm going to keep working out. You're always excited to go home to Florida and the weather is so nice down there. It's nice outside to run and whatnot. How are the workout plans going? Uh, they are not. Oh, no. <laughs> they are not. I just totally, I don't know. I got to day six and I'm I'm totally unmotivated. So uh, any of our listeners out there, please, anything you need to help motivate me, I am all ears. Uh, any challenges? I've, uh, you know, here and there, I've been doing some workouts uh, with uh, friends from back home in DC. But yeah, it's just, I was not expecting it to be so hard to stay active. Uh, you know, like you mentioned, Virginia, where I'm on three acres here. I was like, oh, I have so much space and so much time. And nope, I'm like five minutes before I need to start work. I roll out of bed. <laughs> you know, I'm like not on a great schedule. So definitely yeah. something I want to work on. But one thing I have been doing well is me and my mom have spent a lot of time cooking and having a lot of fun in the kitchen. Uh, we've made everything from egg rolls and fried rice to noodle dishes. It's just something every night we we really are excited. And I think we wake up and we have our morning coffee. And the first thing question is, what are we making for dinner? And we asked our listeners last week that question. And we got a really great answer from Tori C. She posted a photo on Twitter of what her and her husband are making. And the tweet said, 
salmon, twice-baked potatoes, Brussels sprouts, roasted with fresh garlic, caramelized onions, and shiitake mushrooms. Big shout-out to my husband, Sam, for doing most of our cooking. Yum, yum, yum. Some hashtag problematic women don't like to cook. (laughs) Which I just love. I love that. And, Tori, it looks so good. So, so, you know, you got to give and take. Sometimes you work out. Sometimes you cook better. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I, I replied to Tori. I was like, that looks so much better than anything I've been eating. And now that I'm home, like the food quality that I'm eating is definitely wildly improved. (laughs) But we have a great show planned for y'all today. This week, we're bringing you another problematic packed episode with interviews with Olivia Enos to discuss the Communist Party of China covering up their coronavirus cases and how that has affected the worldwide pandemic. Then we talked to Michelle Lawrence, a pastor at my church, New Song in Virginia, about how churches are still connecting with their congregations virtually during Holy Week. And then finally, we connect with CNN contributor and Lady Brains co-host Mary Catherine Hamm about how she turned a quarantine birthday into a fun celebration to raise money for two great causes. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. It really makes such a huge difference. All right, let's jump in and get to our conversation with Olivia. When the coronavirus was first discovered in Wuhan, China, the Chinese Communist Party tried to cover it up. Doctors who were treating patients with the virus and citizen journalists who were trying to report on the situation were silenced. China has restricted aid from foreign humanitarian organizations and the limits they place on free speech and nonprofits within their own nation have restricted efforts to fight COVID-19 quickly. Here with us to break down China's role in covering up the coronavirus and what America's response should be is Heritage Foundation Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center, Olivia Enos. Olivia, thanks so much for being here. So much for having me, Virginia. Now, you have just completed and published a wonderful long report titled How the Chinese Government Undermined the Chinese People's Attempts to prevent and respond to COVID-19. And Dr. Lee, we've heard a little bit about him. He was the the initial doctor that discovered COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. What do we know about Dr. Lee and his attempts to inform the world of really the seriousness of this virus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just amazing that, you know, China essentially just took a classic play out of its playbook this time around by starting to silence whistleblowers like Dr. Lee, as you mentioned. So Dr. Lee started to see an emergence of a pneumonia-like virus, and he really just sort of sounded the alarm on it, um, and especially given that it was so infectious. And um, he was called in for questioning, forced to recant what he had said about it. And unfortunately, Dr. Lee actually ended up dying of coronavirus himself. But he was sounding the alarm all the way back in December. And we really didn't start hearing reports emerging um, from China until January. And so I think that there was a lot of lost time due to the fact that Dr. Lee was 
um, silenced from the start. And not only did you have Dr. Lee and other whistleblowers being told to stay quiet on this, but you also saw China and the Chinese Communist Party saying, you know, we're not going to allow civil society to be involved in a really major way. Instead, we want the Chinese Communist Party to be the hero, the primary agent that is acting to respond to this virus. And we want to sideline the Chinese people and the civil society that really could have helped in responding, especially early on. You know, Olivia, I think for for so many of us in kind of, you know, our our Western culture, this is just so bizarre for us to hear that, you know, a, a medical professional would come to the government and say, I have real concerns about this, and their response would be total cover up. Could you just explain a little bit about how the Chinese government really operates? And, you know, is is this behavior really in alignment with kind of what we have seen from China's party before? I think this is very typical. And in fact, when I first started researching for the paper, I didn't realize that the silencing of whistleblowers in the context of a uh, major health crisis had actually happened previously. So there was a similar incident um, where a doctor sounded the alarm during the SARS epidemic in 2002 and 2003. And um, he started calling into question some of the government's reporting on this. Um, and he started to really let the world know that actually the rate of infection and the number of deaths due to then SARS was much higher than what the Chinese government was reporting. So this is very typical of China, and the Chinese Communist Party likes to maintain a tight grip um, on information. This is why they have their famous firewalls that restrict people's access to different resources on the internet. It's why the Chinese government has consistently engaged in tamping down on religious expression, whether somebody is a Christian or Muslim or um, a Falun Gong practitioner or Buddhist or any faith, because they see it as threatening to the Chinese Communist Party. And it's also the reason why they have historically tamped down on civil society. So a lot of the restrictions that were outlined in the paper, for example, of the Chinese government preferring, uh, it's really a misnomer, but they call them government-affiliated non-governmental organizations as the only ones that can respond, really just shows and demonstrates to us that the Chinese government is willing to sideline civil society. And it's really, I think, at the end of the day, because the Chinese Communist Party prioritizes its own image and its own well-being above the well-being and health of the Chinese people. And I think we're seeing that play out during COVID-19. Yeah. And so there's obviously, you know, within China, <clears throat> excuse me, within China, there are restrictions on, you know, those kind of quote unquote nonprofits that are allowed to operate. And like you say, they're really kind of tied to the government and it's a little bit of um, yeah, not at all what, what we would typically think of a nonprofit. What about outside organizations? I mean, groups like Doctors Without Borders, have they been allowed into China? So by and large, um, any sort of aid and assistance from international NGOs has been turned away. And it's been, um, you know, done in favor of the Chinese NGOs like the Chinese Red Cross. Um, and the Chinese Red Cross actually has a very checkered history. But even in more recent days, um, they've really, you know, kind of 
fallen under fire for misappropriating the aid that they received um, because there are documented cases by the New York Times of them essentially um, taking aid that was supposed to go to the Chinese people and instead giving it to the Chinese government. And so I think you really are seeing the Chinese government hamstringing its own response by saying, no, we're not going to allow other NGOs in. And, you know, just for context, um, in the U.S., faith-based organizations, faith-based universities or healthcare systems or other NGOs, they contribute $303 billion annually to the economy. This is huge in terms of total assistance. And this is what the Chinese government is missing out on when they say that faith-based organizations aren't allowed to be represented in China. Imagine what it would be like if China itself had its own domestic faith-based and, of course, non-faith-based civil society actors that were able to respond on, on such a massive scale. Let's go back for a second and just talk a little bit about kind of when this first started in China and those initial discoveries that the Chinese people were making. We know in addition to medical professionals that there were also some citizen journalists that really caught wind of this. And they tried to warn the Chinese people and the rest of the world what was going on. What happened to those journalists? So you're absolutely right. There were a lot of individuals and these were, you know, in some cases, human rights lawyers turned citizen journalists, in some cases, um, businessmen turned citizen journalists or just ordinary Chinese. And what we started to see was that the Chinese Communist Party was essentially making them disappear. And the excuse would be that they were going into forced quarantine um, due to COVID-19. But, um, you know, the forced quarantine happened several months ago, and the quarantine time period is 15 to 21 days, typically. Um, And they have not yet reappeared, as far as I can tell. Um, So this is very typical of China. Um, You see critics often being silenced in one way or another, whether that's them being subjected to re-education through forced labor, um, them actually being killed. Um, We've had individuals who've actually visited the Heritage Foundation in the past who returned to China and ended up dying like a week and a half later. Um, And these are very well-known advocates for freedom, for um, faith-based organizations. Some of them were Christian. Um, And so it's really alarming to see that happening. But of course, the most massive scale that we've really seen um, is in more recent years, the rapid collectivization of Uyghur Muslims to the tune of one to three million that are currently held in political re-education facilities today where they're subjected to indoctrination, where they're forced to recant a lot of what they believe, forced to learn Mandarin, and and in some cases tortured or um, required to engage in forced labor. And so we really just what we're getting is this picture of a Chinese Communist Party that does not respect civil liberties, that does not respect individual freedom, and we should be very concerned. And we also know of a man, he was a Christian, by the name of Sun Feng. And he, kind of in the midst of, you know, all this information starting to come out in China, he just sent a message to some friends of his and say, hey, we should really all begin to pray and fast um, that this virus is ended. What happened to Sun Feng? 
Yeah, it's a really remarkable story. Um, so Mr. Sun was actually uh, called in for questioning and uh, was told that he was called into questioning for uh, offering up quote unquote, unauthorized prayers. I think this example um, really highlights the fact that the Chinese Communist Party invades into the most private and closely held beliefs of individuals. I mean, this is a behavior that does not harm anyone to engage in prayer and fasting. Um, but the Chinese Communist Party sees it as a threat because they're really threatened by any uh, anything um, that might be perceived as an authority that individuals might give their allegiance to that is not the party. And so I think this is, you know, obviously very concerning, but also typical of China where you, you do see the targeting of people simply for um, having faith. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, one of the ways that now we're seeing that China's trying to control the virus and the spread is through an app called Alipay Health Code that actually ranks someone in China on how likely they are to be a carrier or to have been exposed to the virus. But there are a lot of concerns about this app and just that it's really highly invasive of, of people's personal privacy. Can you explain just kind of what the app is, what it does, and why it poses privacy threats? Yeah, the Alipay Health Code app is a huge invasion of privacy. Um, it essentially gets downloaded onto your phone and it has the ability to communicate with local law enforcement by sharing very personal data, including your GPS location. Um, I think it actually has the ability to register your temperature too um, and like definitely tracks um, transactions. Um, but it's incredibly invasive um, and it does share that private in information with law enforcement. Um, and it, the individual's ranking, like the different color codes, as you mentioned, that people receive um, can be affected by whether or not you're like a member of the Chinese Communist Party, which should have absolutely nothing to do with your susceptibility or likelihood of contracting COVID-19. Um, and so it's just been really remarkable to watch that and especially to see the rollout of this app against the backdrop of the Chinese government's more sinister use of surveillance technology, which we know was one of the ways that they were able to rapidly collectivize the one to three million Uyghurs that are currently held in political re-education facilities today. And so even though the Chinese government or maybe even other people who are, you know, looking at, well, how do we develop the smartest or most effective response to the coronavirus might say, well, why don't we deploy surveillance technology? But I think given China's sinister use of it um, and the lack of rule of law and accountability that exists in China, I think this is a pretty concerning use of the technology and definitely should lead people to ask questions like, how will this be used once COVID-19 is over? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's scary. So in other words, it, it could be an app that the Chinese government kind of decides, oh, actually, this is helpful. We've liked collecting this information. We're just going to keep doing it. 
Exactly. And then they can use it to target their political opposition. And, you know, as we talked about before, just the way that they so quickly, um, you know, pulled citizen journalists aside and, and put them in forced quarantine or the way that they responded to Dr. Lee. Um, it's just abundantly clear that that surveillance technology can be used to silence their opposition and that they're not afraid to use that. Wow. So considering the way that China has really handled this virus and the whole situation and trying to cover it up, do you think that America should be taking actions right now to really reprimand China for their actions? And and if so, what would that look like? Well, I think that the U.S. definitely should call upon China to respect freedom of speech, respect um, civil society's ability to act and respond, and, of course, respect freedom of religion. And that's something that we have been doing um, to press on China for a long time now, um, especially on, you know, requesting things like loosening the restrictions for civil society organizations to be able to register, et cetera. But I think in the midst of COVID-19, we have an especial you know, amount of leverage in order to press for this because the U.S. is the top single country donor to China in the midst of the coronavirus. We've donated, um, you know, as of like mid-March, $1.3 billion to try to alleviate the suffering of the Chinese people. And so in addition to requesting that China respects these rights and, and pushing on them in diplomatic engagements with them, I think that we should also be requesting access for the CDC. Because if the Chinese Communist Party isn't willing to put the, you know, best, um, their best foot forward in order to help the Chinese people, then perhaps the U.S. government can. And I think that, um, you know, beyond that, we need to communicate to Chinese government officials that the U.S. is watching and that we have tools in our toolbox, Treasury specifically, that would enable us to target individuals on human rights and corruption grounds. And so while we may not sanction them, you know, only for things that they've done during their coronavirus response, we will definitely be looking for ways to target individuals who are engaging in religious freedom violations and suppressing freedom of speech as a general habit. Are you hopeful that we might see China kind of take from this situation, oh, wow, there are real benefits to being a freer society maybe we should kind of try that out. <laughs> you know, is is there really any possibility that we might see them loosen anything? Or do you think that's highly unlikely? I think, you know, we can always hold out hope. But I do think it's unlikely, especially under um, President Xi Jinping's leadership, where we've just seen almost a, a rapid return to almost an old version of what China used to be like during the Cultural Revolution. Um, And I think this is especially vivid, as I mentioned before, in the case of their treatment of the Uyghurs, but certainly true of Tibetan Buddhists and their crackdown on on Christians. And um, I really think that Xi Jinping has tried to consolidate power. And so I'm, you know, I'm skeptical of any rapid changes, but I think, you know, the U.S. government has long been out there actively promoting um, freedom, not just for folks in the U.S., but for people all over the globe. And I think, you know, this is a really unique time in the midst of a global pandemic for Americans to demonstrate the resiliency of a democracy. I mean, one of the most beautiful things 
um, even in going through suffering and, and, you know, being in our social distancing, you know, pseudo quarantine states ourselves has been seeing average Americans step up, whether that's people offering to go and get groceries for their neighbors or churches being willing to give of their tithe or civil society organizations that are making sure that people have masks. And I think that, you know, even if we can't convince the Chinese government to change its ways, at the end of the of COVID-19, if the Chinese people know that average Americans care about them and want what's best for them and want them to get healthy and recover from COVID-19, I think we will consider that a success. Olivia, thank you so much for your time today. Just really appreciate your perspective and all of the research that you have done and just sharing that information with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Virginia. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment with Pastor Michelle Lawrence to talk about Easter and how we can all still celebrate even though we're in quarantine. Our top priority at The Daily Signal is to ensure that you have the most accurate information regarding COVID-19. Here's a message from Dr. Deborah Burks, head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, explaining why the administration has extended the number of days to slow the spread from 15 to 30. We extended the 15-day guidance for another 30 days to ensure that every American can stop the spread of this virus. You can see what's happening in each of our communities. We want to make sure that every single metro area and every single rural area continues these guidelines so that we can prevent both the spread of the virus and the the fatalities that we're seeing right now in New York City. You can be part of the solution. Welcome back. We are joined by Michelle Lawrence, an associate pastor at New Song Church in Fianna, Virginia, and very importantly, a pastor of mine and also a good friend of mine. (laughs) Michelle, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. (laughs) Well, you know, it's Easter week or Holy Week, as many faith traditions refer to it. And this is a time when usually, you know, Christians were gathering together a lot to celebrate Christ's death and his resurrection. Passover began yesterday. And of course, tomorrow is Good Friday and Sunday is Easter, a day in which, you know, usually churches all over the world are are gathering and holding services. But because of COVID-19, we're now, you know, we're online, we're, we're connecting in other ways from our homes. So, you know, Michelle, these are such unprecedented times, but what do you think it looks like to truly celebrate Easter, whether or not there is a pandemic? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. So for our church at New Song, and I know so many other churches, we have been doing a live stream So that's been a really helpful way to still stay connected with our community. We do it on Facebook Live, which allows people to interact. But in addition to that, we're really encouraging people to figure out what it looks like for them to do church at home, even for our kids who are used to being in a Sunday school class, you know, where we have provided everything for them. And I think especially, you know, one of the things I've been processing leading up to Easter is that we're celebrating the death but also the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us as believers moving forward. It's an incredible day where we celebrate his life, but also the life that we can have because of him. And I know for me, I've been really diving into Acts 2 quite a bit and just looking to see the way that the early church really lived life after Jesus's 
life, death, and resurrection. And so I don't think that that has to happen at a church, though, of course, we love to gather um, in person and, and hope to be able to do that again soon. We really can live like Jesus and love like Jesus in our daily life, in our home, if not one of the best ways to do that with our families, with our roommates, with the people that we're around to love one another, to serve one another, and even to listen to each other process as we're in a really unique time in history with with everything going on right now. Yeah, no, I love that. Can you just maybe talk a little bit more about how you are spending time in devotion and spending time with God right now? Because you know, it just, mm. it can feel kind of awkward. You know, we're, we're all at home and we're trying to be connected and we maybe have more time on our hands. But at the same time, there's just kind of this weightiness in a season that, mm-hmm. you know, usually, you know, it's springtime and it's Easter and there's usually so much celebration. And um, yeah, it, it just feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I love that you're using that word, Virginia, because I think so many people can relate to that. Uh, I've talked to some who feel like this is great. I have more time to spend with God. But honestly, there's a lot of people, especially those who are parents with kids at home uh, or they're taking care of others who are really struggling with it. Um, I think a lot of times we sit down to spend time with God, uh, whether that's to read our word or to worship or to pray or to journal. And we have all of these thoughts that come to our mind or all of these to-dos or all of these anxious, you know, worrying that can kind of come to the surface when we slow down. I think for a lot of people, it can feel scary in some ways and stressful. And like you said, uncomfortable to slow down. And so I've just been encouraging people uh, and myself just to give yourself grace that it is okay to feel uncomfortable and to encourage you to lean into that. I think a lot of times we can find ourselves wanting to self-medicate in a variety of ways. Uh, Busyness is one of the things that we tend to do best in this area. Um, And so in this season where for many of us, things have slowed down, I think it's important to just be honest, even in our prayers with God. Something that I say often is, and have been praying lately is, Jesus, teach me how to be still with you. Teach me how to just enjoy your presence. Teach me how to get comfortable being uncomfortable as I'm navigating a new season. Ah, that's so good, Michelle. I love that. Um, so, you know, for, for people who they're so used to that tradition of going Mm -hmm. to church on Easter, um, and you know, they're really disappointed that they can't do that this year. Do you have any good recommendations for how they can still really make Easter a, a holy day and kind of a day that's set apart? Yeah, it's such a good question. I would encourage people to to tune into some kind of streaming. Uh, you know, New Song isn't one of the only churches that's doing that. There's so many incredible churches that have a live streaming service. And I've really been encouraging people to engage. If you're tuning into something, don't just sit and observe. But during a time of worship, worship too. During a time of prayer, pray along with whoever's leading in prayer. And maybe even take notes during the message. The point isn't to just attend something, even on a Sunday when we're together, the point is to be transformed, right? And so I really encourage people to just find ways to engage and then engage in conversation. I I know so many people who feel pretty isolated right now, uh, especially those with maybe more extroverted personalities who like to be around people. I think to be able to use a phone call or even a video call, I know for um, me and my fiance, we're this Sunday going to do a virtual dinner with some people over a video call, you know, so we're going to make food and just spend time pretending like we're together uh, and having good, meaningful conversations. Um, And then just my, I guess the last thing would be to 
one of my most frequent prayers is God, give me an increasing awareness of your presence because he's not just at a church building and in a church service. He is all around us and the Holy Spirit fills us. And so uh, I think realizing that, you know, he is the one, he's the whole focus of Easter. It's, it's God that we're focusing on and he is with us. I love that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. I love that he's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Or I love even the way that the message version says it, uh, he moved into the neighborhood. And so I've really just been picturing Jesus in this season, living in my neighborhood and being near me in a really practical daily way. I love it. So good. Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. We just really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right. And if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today. It's now that time, my favorite part of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. This week, the honor goes to Mary Catherine Ham, newlywed, mother of two, CNN contributor, and Lady Brains podcast host. This week, Mary Catherine celebrated a birthday, and instead of a birthday video conference like most people are having, she decided to use the occasion to get people moving and raise money for charity. From Mary Catherine's Twitter, I turned 40 Sunday, birthday request. I miss people and working out with people. Will you join me for any of four at one Peloton workouts? No bike needed for three of them, and the app is free right now. Sunday, April 5th, that and or donate to at TM Foundation or Kosher19.org. To talk about the fundraiser, we have Mary Catherine here on the show. Well, first off, happy birthday, Mary Catherine. Thank you very much. It's my, so, my first quarantine birthday. Yeah, hopefully your only quarantine birthday. One hopes. Yeah. One hopes. <laughs> so how many workouts did you end up doing in total? Uh, yeah, so I decided uh, for my quarantine birthday, um, it's a milestone birthday. I turned 40 on Sunday. And I was like, I do need some way to mark this. I mean, obviously, I can have a nice time with my children and my husband. Um, but I was like, what's a, I'm an extrovert. So I've been suffering. Um, uh, just on an emotional level <laughs> inside my house, like I need friends to play with, um, as I know many an extrovert has probably felt over the last month. And so I thought, well, there are ways online that people can work out with me, which is one of my favorite pastimes. So let's try that. So um, I have I've been doing Peloton uh, stuff. My my husband bought a Peloton like six months ago slightly before the Peloton wife commercial uproar, I think. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I was like slightly skeptical, uh, slash slightly in, interested. And uh, now it's like sort of a lifesaver for us because both of us will be, go crazy if we don't work out. So I thought, well, let me, let me do four workouts for turning 40 in one day. And then I used that to basically used ridiculous things that I do regularly uh, to raise money for the Travis Manion Foundation, on which I'm I'm on the board of that. And it's one of my favorite uh, charities. And for uh, my friend Bethany Mandel's newly started nonprofit, Kosher 19, which is uh, keeping small businesses uh, alive by sending kosher food from kosher restaurants to healthcare workers on the front line, which is just a great combo of things uh, to be able to help with at this point in time. So I raised some money for those two organizations and, uh, 
and then worked out a lot and then fell asleep very early. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's so great. How many people in total participated in doing the workouts? You know what? I'm not sure. I've been trying to tell people to find me um, on the Peloton app uh, and elsewhere, but the issue is matching up everybody's usernames because you've got totally different usernames in different places. So I'm still working that out, but it does seem like uh, we got some donations uh, thrown in the right directions. And uh, some people also asked if I want, if I want to arrange a weekly Peloton ride, which I, I might think about doing um, because I do think that that is uh, working out in whatever capacity you can in your home or your backyard is a healthy way uh, to deal with some of the stress that everybody is feeling from this situation. So I like to do my best online to point people toward healthy things, um, even though, you know, I'm also enjoying my wine and my hard <laughs> seltzer when I need to. <laughs> <laughs> we had a nice little crowd and a lot of people um, who I know from the news business, like Jenna Lee, who runs Smart Her News, um, and uh, Erica Anderson, who's worked with many of us before, all, both of whom are are good workout buddies, Um who can't be my workout buddies in real life right now. So they joined there. So <laughs> I had a couple, <laughs> had, a, had, a, had a good group of good friends and some, some strangers who I'm now buddies with. Yeah, Virginia and I were talking at the top of the show about how hard it is to keep a regular workout routine when you're at your house. Because, you, you know, I know you like to do Orange Theory like I do, and I talk a lot about it on the show. But like without having that $12 cancel fee, it just, mm-hmm. I, I have no motivation or friends to go work out with. So that it's really great. Yeah, it's, it can be tricky. That's one of the reasons, like, even if my friends and I are just doing an app that has no social part of it, even if we just make an appointment to do the app at a certain time, it helps you keep that appointment. And the whole reason I said I would do four workouts is because once I said it in public, I was like, well, now I have to do them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I regretted that after the first one, but I did make it through. I did two, I did two rides on the bike, two spin classes on the bike, one full body strength with my husband who does not let me sandbag it. So that was a bummer. <laughs> I could not wimp out on it. And then one with my kids, which I thought was going to be really easy. And then it was not. <laughs> 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 but yeah, if you I find that if you make appointments with friends, even if you're just doing a CrossFit wad that's written on paper, if you make the appointment with your friend, even if you're not in the same place, you can suffer together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk some more about the charities that you raise money for. Uh, can you let our listeners know a little bit more about them and if they're interested in donating where they can do so? Yeah, so the Travis Mannion Foundation is my my favorite charity. It's what I do a ton of work with them. I'm on the board. And we have, uh, especially in this crisis, um, it's helpful to have in any sort of um, natural disaster as well. We have a network of veterans um, and families of the fallen, sort of gold star families and blue star families across the nation that we can sort of mobilize to help with things. Uh, so right now they're collecting things to, you know, masks and, uh, hand sanitizer and all the things, scrub, scrub caps, that type of thing, uh, to send to different hospitals on front lines. Um, they are also, the Travis Manion Foundation does a school program called Character Does Matter, which is a little different than most things that, uh, students get in schools these days. It, just deals with character and it's delivered by vet by vets. And um, right now we're doing at 1 PM every day live on Facebook, those that curriculum, which is actually a school curriculum approved by a bunch of schools and uh, could be really helpful to parents of say, you know, it's good for all ages, but I would say if you're struggling with like 
uh, sullen teens at home, <laughs> it might be it might be a good thing to turn on for them at one o'clock um, to hear from people who've you know really struggled, really accomplished things, been been through the fire, uh, and learned to live a life with purpose. Uh, and it's I think it's a great thing for perspective for people in a tough time. So that's um, and if you just go to travismanion.org, you can learn all about that or follow us on uh, Facebook or Twitter you'll find all the good stuff. Um, but it really, it's a great organization with great people and their, their zest for life is uh, contagious um, in the best way, not the, not the bad contagion. I know we're dealing with a lot right now. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you'll enjoy uh, their wisdom and they're also giving help on the ground, tons of places. Uh, and then Bethany Mandel, um, who many of us know from Twitter, if you are in conservative circles at all, uh, she started this organization by accident where she said, I'm just going to take some uh, donations to buy pizza from a kosher place for uh, healthcare workers because I don't want the kosher place to go out of business because there aren't that many of them because they're these tiny little niche businesses. Um, and lo and behold, people gave her thousands and thousands of dollars. And she said, thank you for trusting me. I guess I'll start a nonprofit. So if you go to, <laughs> if you go to kosher19.org, uh, you can find a way to really be up close and personal uh, without uh, without being while being responsible by sending exactly what they need to healthcare workers on the front line. So that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, that is that is really cool. Uh, I would really encourage our listeners to reach out and support those folks. And Mary Catherine, I don't know how you found the time or even had the energy, but you wrote a beautiful article that came out yesterday in the Atlantic called "It's Okay to Be a Different Kind of Parent During the Pandemic." which discusses parenting during a crisis, which you tragically are too familiar with after the passing of your first husband. We could spend a whole show breaking down this article, but I really want to unpack one great piece of advice that you have that takes stress off of parents and letting them know that they don't have to be the same type of parent every day. Uh, Can you discuss a little bit? Yeah, I just, uh, when everybody started uh, sort of understandably freaking out that they had to change all of their ways about three weeks ago. Um, and they were going to be at home with their kids. And a, I saw a bunch of people being very discouraged and saying, well, I'm not a stay at home mom. I'm not a math teaching mom. I don't do this Pinterest stuff. Um, and I, and I just thought, Hey, what people might need to know, cause I've been in this situation. I had to switch what kind of parent I was very fast. Um, don't naysay yourself. Like you are probably capable of more, than you think you are, um, and the parent you have—the parent you are today—is not the parent you have to be tomorrow. You can be the parent you want to be for two hours today, and then phone it in for the rest of the day and watch Tiger King. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> tomorrow you can try again, and every day you get to try again is a gift. Um, and I think having perspective about like this is a tough thing, but it's a thing we can walk through, and it's the thing you can change through, and like taking control of the things you have control over uh, will benefit your kids immensely. It will make them feel safe uh, and like they can walk through this as well because they're going to, they're dealing with it too. Um, So anyway, those are, I just came up with a few of the sort of mental tricks or things I tried to shift my thinking in a time of crisis because we're all having to do it right now. So if you check that out at the Atlantic um, yeah, it's called, it's okay to be a different kind of parent in the pandemic. And it is, it is okay. <laughs> and even without kids, I, I definitely learned something from that article. Cause I think you could apply it to really any part of your life, not just parenting. Yeah, I hope so. I, um, and I, I suspected that was the case, but I was so kid focused that I was like, uh, this will be a good pitch for parents. Many of my friends who have been, um, certainly scared about how this is going down and how they were going to cope. It's a, it is, it's a really tough thing and it is akin to 
a crisis or a trauma situation. And we have to think about how to get through it one hour at a time, one day at a time, one week at a time. Well, thank you so much for writing such a important moving piece. We will be sure to link to it in our show notes. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, before we let you all go, this week's Twitter question is definitely my favorite question we've asked yet. So as Lauren and I talked about at the beginning of the show, for many of us, we're staying with our families right now. And sometimes that can just lead to a lot of funny situations with multiple people trying to work from home and on conference calls in the same small space or all trying to cook different meals in the kitchen. So if you have, uh, whether it's a funny story or a stressful moment that you want to share with us, please tweet at The Daily Signal and use the hashtag Problematic Women, and we will read your tweet on the air next week. Can I tell you mine, Virginia? Yes, please. So we have this call every morning at 1030 with a lot of the communication staff, and it's, it's a video call, and you know, usually people join and they mute themselves, and I, I forgot to mute myself. And as somebody was talking and I sneezed so loudly <laughs> that I think I scared everybody in the whole meeting <laughs> and like everybody tried to like play it off. <laughs> and I muted myself, but then just like for the rest of the time, I was like, is there an elephant on the line? <laughs> Wait a second. Well, I think my favorite like whoops moment of someone not muting themselves so far was uh, one of our producers on the Daily Signal slash Heritage Foundation team, Mark, his roommate asked him when he was on that same call, hey, do you want porridge? And he was like, yes, yes. <laughs> porridge. <laughs> and everyone else on the call was like, we want porridge too. <laughs> Which I don't call it porridge. I call it oatmeal. But anyway. Oh, I didn't great. realize that was the same thing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the same oh. thing. Anyway. Oh, you learned something again. So we want <laughs> to hear your funny yeah, moments. Please tweet at us. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservers need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Stay healthy, stay inside, and have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.